I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners, on this edition of the program. Former CIA and State Department analyst Melvin A. Goodman returns to discuss Israel-Palestine, U.S. foreign policy, the intelligence failure of October 7th, the date of the Hamas attack, and much, much more. Melvin Goodman is, for those that may not be familiar with his work and writings, a columnist at Counterpunch and a well-known CIA whistleblower. He's the author of the book Whistleblower at the CIA, an insider's account of the politics of intelligence. With all that in mind, let's get right to it with Melvin A. Goodman. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I hold in very high esteem, and I'm so glad he could come back on uh, to discuss the latest events unfolding in the Middle East. Melvin A. Goodman, he's the senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a professor of government at John Hopkins University, also a former CIA analyst, has also worked at the State Department. He's the author of Failure of Intelligence, The Decline and Fall of the CIA, and National Insecurity, The Cost of American Militarism, as well as the more recent book, American Carnage, The Wars of Donald Trump. How are you doing today, Melvin Goodman? Well, I'm doing fine generally, but the international situation has certainly got me depressed. Well, you could say that again, but, uh, you know, it's it's a very um, tense situation right now. And I guess the first thing I wanted to discuss with you, and I know you haven't necessarily written a, a whole article on this, but 
In regards to the October 7th Hamas attack, I know you've written a lot about the issue of politicization of intelligence. And there's been some talk of that in regards to why uh, Israel was unable to stop the attack, putting security forces in the West Bank rather than Gaza. Do you think that it's going to come out that a lot of uh, what occurred on the 7th was due to issues with politicization of intelligence in Israel? No, I don't think politicization had anything to do with this intelligence failure any more than it did with the intelligence failure of the October War. And there are some similarities between the October War and October uh, the 7th. The fact of the matter is the Netanyahu government, his military, his intelligence services, uh, Mossad, their their CIA, were convinced they had Hamas under control. And I think this was a good example of Israeli arrogance and hubris which was the same problem in the October War in 1973, arrogance and hubris. They didn't think the Egyptians and Syrians could ever combine. They didn't think Egypt and Syria would have the, the guts or the, the power uh, to make the moves that eventually took place uh, in October. So I don't think it's politicization. I think it's a, a classic intelligence failure of a, a feedback loop that was created in which they convinced all themselves that they had Hamas right where they wanted them so they could move troops to uh, the northern border with Lebanon, or they could move more forces uh, into the West Bank. Netanyahu had divided his public with his outrageous ideas about uh, limiting the powers of the Supreme Court. So th this was made for a force as clever as Hamas uh, to exploit the situation. And it's obvious by everything they did on, the, on October 7th, this was well-planned. Could you speak a little bit more to uh, your analysis of the October 7th attack. Is there anything that you think a lot of commentators and analysts have missed about the, both the attack itself and the Israeli response? Well, I think the major thing that's been missed, and it's been true in Vietnam, it's been true in Iraq, uh, and the U.S. failure there, Afghanistan and the U.S. failure there, Israel and its failures over the years with the Palestinians, uh, that they have such faith, faith in their high-tech weaponry and, and their modern uh, technology uh, that they fail to see what a small insurgency or guerrilla-type group could do. Uh, and of course, this was the problems we had uh, in Afghanistan with the Taliban. It's the problems we had with in Vietnam with the Viet uh, Khan. So it's this, it's this uh, unrestricted confidence that we were, we're smarter than they are, we have more power than they do, we have more technology than they do, what in the hell are they going to do about it? And I go back also to Madeleine Albright, if I could just say one other thing, and this uh, remark she made in 1998 about the indispensable nation. Uh, we stand taller, we see further than other countries, so if we have to use force, we will. And what was appalling about President Biden's speech on October the 19th is not only did he endorse the idea of the indispensable nation, he referred to Madeleine Albright by name. Madeleine Albright should be forgotten, not embraced. I'll move on from questions about the intelligence failure of October 7th. But I, I did want to ask you, um, in your experience as someone who has worked as a CIA analyst, can you give any further insights into how intelligence failures like the one we saw on October 7th happen? Well, there are two kinds of intelligence failures. There's one kind where you have uh, outward, uh, outside interference or intervention in the intelligence process. 
And we saw that with uh, William Casey, a CIA director, and Robert Gates, his deputy in the 1980s, where all of the intelligence about the uh, uh, so-called Soviet uh, military might uh, was, was all fabricated. There was tremendous politicization uh, of the intelligence. So that's when you get a serious intelligence failure. And then fast forward to 2000 to 2003 and the Iraq war and all of the phony intelligence about weapons of mass destruction, which didn't exist. Uh, but again, you had a CIA director, a weak CIA director, George Tenet, who wanted to give George W. Bush everything he wanted. But I don't think, as I said earlier, I don't think politicization had anything to do with these two failures. This failure is, to me, more typical of uh, wrong assumptions. Uh, and that would explain Pearl Harbor, even though that was before the CIA, but still you had intelligence uh, units at that time about what the Japanese couldn't do, about Western superiority. And then you fast forward to the October War, which was an intelligence failure, not only in the part of uh, Israel, even though they had a, a spy, they had an Egyptian agent who was providing them very good information. But again, they ignored their own agent who had they had worked so hard to uh, recruit. And the CIA joined in. Uh, they got this, uh, the October War plans wrong uh, as well, even though they were moving in the right direction. But when they saw the Israelis were convinced there couldn't be an attack, uh, the CIA bought into the uh, uh, Israeli point of view, but it's it's wrong assumptions. And once you have wrong assumptions or you don't challenge your assumptions and you don't go back uh, to examine the evidence uh, in a, with a different scenario, uh, the situation is ripe uh, for failure. One thing that I was very interested in speaking with you about is, um, you know, I, I think a lot of times now, if you try to talk about the history of the Israel-Palestine issue, conflict, uh, whatever people want to call it, uh, people I've had say to me, well, if you talk about what happened before October 7th and you know Israeli actions uh, done towards Palestinians before October 7th, uh, you're contextualizing brutality. And we saw this come up recently with... Uh, Israel calling for the resignation of UN uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres, uh, who said, you know, the October 7th attack didn't happen in a vacuum. I'm curious, what do you think of all the debate around, you know, talking about the past is ignoring what happened on the 7th? And, and what do you make of uh, the calls for Antonio Guterres to resign? Well, the calls for his resignation are really outrageous. He was saying something that I think is quite clear, that you have to step back and be a little more even-handed. So you can't start the discussion on October 7th. You have to look at the context. You have to look at certainly at least start with 2006. It was the George Bush administration with the advice of uh, Condoleezza Rice, by the way, thinking that called an election in Gaza. Uh, Hamas will certainly be defeated in this election. Well, they weren't defeated. They won the election. There have been complaints about the election, but no one's come up with an overwhelming case for a fraud in the election. Uh, Hamas won. The Palestinian Authority lost. Uh, and you had the limits, the sanctions uh, that were placed on uh, Gaza. Um, you know, Netanyahu's belief has always been uh, uh, the worst uh and Palestinian grouping is the best for Israeli policy because then they can do the things they want. 
So they didn't have any problem with introducing Hamas uh, as a leader in that election. They placed sanctions on Gaza. They had incredible limits on borders. There was no freedom of uh, movement. Palestinians couldn't get out of Gaza. And so as a former British prime minister said, the Israelis created an open hair prison um, in Gaza. So that, that's yeah, that part was of David the Cameron that said that, I believe. David Cameron said that. He made that remark. Open air prison. And that's exactly what Gaza has been since uh, 2006. So in, in regards to Netanyahu's strategy, I've read a few different um, reports on the fallout from October 7th. And it seems as if what happened in a lot of ways was you had these figures like Netanyahu that were almost interested in propping up Hamas because it would sort of act as a divide and conquer against the Palestinian Authority. It would divide the Palestinians. And not only that, I think there was this uh, belief that figures like Netanyahu had that Hamas could be contained. Uh, do you think those two points are very valid? Oh, they're extremely valid. I think uh, Netanyahu's position, and he's not the only one who supports this in the Israeli uh, leadership, uh, that if you get uh, a, a more... Uh, dangerous, a more violent Palestinian faction. This will give the Israelis justification for not dealing with the Palestinians all because they can talk about the, the division between the West Bank under the hands of the Palestinian Authority and Abbas, as opposed to uh, Gaza and the administration of Hamas. The irony of all of this uh, is that when you look at the two uh, greatest threats right now on the border, Hamas in Gaza and Hezbollah, uh, on the northern border, the Israelis were in one case directly responsible for their cre uh, creation and indirectly responsible for the creation in the other case. Hezbollah, they're responsible for because it was the invasion of uh, Beirut in 1982 to throw out the Palestine, Palestinian Liberation Organization and Yasser uh, Arafat. Uh, and they weren't a real threat uh, to Israel. That led to the formation of what is now an extremely profound threat uh, to Israel. Hamas, they had a direct hand in formulating, in, in forming, because they were involved in clandestine transfers of uh, money to Hamas in the 1980s, because, as uh, I said earlier, th this would draw a contrast to the Palestinian Authority, which was a more moderate group, and the Israelis could be excused from negotiating with the moderates because they could say, well, look at this vicious group uh, on our border that's operating in Gaza. So this this was uh, Netanyahu's strategy. The U.S. strategy, I think, has been is a different kind of strategy, but it's similarly flawed. People like Joe Biden and others have always said, well, if we, we give is Israel everything they need in terms of military uh, weaponry, they will then have the confidence to enter negotiations for a two-state solution. Uh, that just, <laughs> that has not worked. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But in the meantime, Israel has banked all of this uh, capital uh, and been able to buy uh, military weaponry uh, as they please in a way no other country until the Ukraine situation came along uh, could do. In regards to Joe Biden and U.S. foreign policy when it comes to Israel-Palestine, uh, you know, you, you're sort of referencing there what I think has been called the sort of bear hug strategy, which is, you know, uh, talk uh. about unconditional support uh, to Israel. And then I've also seen reports saying that, uh, you know, Biden uh, is sort of talking on the phone to people like Netanyahu privately and saying, hey, 
you know, don't do what we did after 9-11. Could you talk a little bit more about that strategy and uh, maybe the problems with it? Also, if you have any thoughts on uh, Biden's call for a humanitarian pause. Well, uh, the call for the humanitarian pause is uh, is late, but at least it's there uh, on the table. And I assume that that's the message Blinken will be carrying uh, to Israel. But Biden is a typical Democratic uh, politician, typical Democratic president, in that he doesn't want any a space between his support for Israel and the attitude of the American Jewish community, which will support any Democratic uh a candidate for president by at least 70, 75 uh, percent. That's what it's been uh, over the years. So I don't think of any Democratic president who's really been willing to put pressure on Israel. Whenever there's been pressure, it came from a Republican uh, president who wasn't as beholden to the uh, the Jewish vote. That would be Eisenhower, George H.W. Bush in the early 1990s, withholding some money uh, over their settlements policy. And um, certainly, uh, well, Henry Kissinger in the Nixon administration in terms of pressure put on Israel when Israel was violating the ceasefire that Kissinger and Kosygin worked so carefully to put into uh, place. So I don't expect Biden to be uh, very public in these positions. Uh, I hope he's willing to put pressure on Israel because only the United States is in a position to put pressure on Israel. Israel is not going to pay attention to the international community or the United Nations or the European Union or any other international uh, eliminary group. But if the United States said the weapons flow is going to be altered, uh, that would get their attention. But we've never been willing uh, to do that. So now I think we're complicit. Uh, and what's going on? We supply, if they're using 155 millimeter artillery shells that we rushed over there, and apparently diverted from our uh, Ukrainian pipeline, uh, then we're we are uh, complicit. And Biden, remember one other thing I, I, w- I want to say is that Biden himself uh, personally was embarrassed by Netanyahu uh, when he was Obama's vice president and went over to Israel. And the day he arrived. Netanyahu announced a new aggressive settlement strategy that was designed to embarrass uh, Biden. And there were a lot of people in the White House who went to Obama and said, we've got to call Biden back. Don't let don't let him stay uh, in Israel. We can't tolerate this. And of course, Obama, who was always very cautious and very moderate in his own actions, uh, wasn't going to take that step. Uh, And then we have this anecdote uh, that when Biden left uh, Israel, he gave a picture to of himself to Netanyahu and he signed it. He says, I don't agree with the damn thing you say, but I still love you. So we've always provided that embrace that has enabled Israel, a, super, a regional superpower, to do whatever they pleased uh, in the Middle East. So, so now we're, we're, we're tethered to this outrageous policy they're pursuing of collective punishment uh, and denying Palestinians to even flee from the area of the bombing because we're still dropping bombs in southern Gaza and even on the uh, the roots of the so-called invasion. And we're denying uh, food, water, and, and fuel. So we're complicit. If you could, I want to go back to what you said about Republicans. That's very true about uh, figures, especially George H.W. Bush uh, was more critical of Israel than I, I think uh, people realize if they were to look at the sort of history there. Um, but I know some people are going to say, well, you know, hasn't the Republican Party been very chummy with um, 
APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, and also uh, the W. Bush administration was, I, I would say, very pro-Israel. Uh, so what, what would you say to people that think, I think people may misinterpret what you said about the Republicans as, uh, oh. go on. Yeah, good good point. I don't, I, want, I don't want to create the impression that Republicans treat Israel any differently than Democrats do, because generally there's bipartisan agreement. And we can see what's happening in the, the House now with the Speaker's attempt to carve out uh, money for Israel and uh, kick the Ukrainian can uh, down the road. But all I'm saying is whenever there's been an exception to that, uh, it's been a Republican, hasn't been uh, a Democrat. And we've known how people like, well, Jimmy Carter and Barack Obama, we know how they felt about dealing with the Israelis and how difficult it is. And uh, I taught at the National War College for nearly 20 years and talked to the U.S. servicemen who worked on peacekeeping arrangements in, in the Middle East and around Israel specifically. And they are very difficult negotiating partners. They're, they're very tough-minded. So if you're not willing to be equally tough-minded, you're <laughs> they're going to take your lunch. And that's what Israelis have been doing. Uh, you know, what do, what do we really get back in this strategic we keep calling this a strategic relationship. We know what Israel gets out of it. Uh, I ask people every now and then, what are we getting out of it? And I've never gotten a good answer. What do you think drives that relationship? Because I've often said the same thing. I feel as if the relationship is very lopsided and the U.S. necessarily doesn't get as much out of it. I've also had other guests like Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson uh, sort of um, say the same thing. So what what do you think drives the relationship? Well, it's driven in this country by domestic politics, uh, the unwillingness to take on uh, the American Jewish uh, lobby. Uh, the Jews are extremely active politically. Uh, a lot of money is donated to the Democratic uh, Party. Uh, this is an ethnic group that Democrats uh, are beholden to, and they don't want to change that relationship. So it's a it's a domestic issue, and it has been uh from the very beginning when i think of truman's decision uh, to recognize israel and it was it's ironic that the united states and the soviet union were the first two countries to recognize israeli uh independence in 1948 he ignored all of the uh opposition that came particularly from the department of state about the complications that this would create for american foreign policy down the road and it it, it certainly has so even when israel has openly lied to us. You know, the, the, the classic case, of course, is the USS Liberty. I was at the CIA on the task force at that time. You know, the Israelis have always complained that that was an accident, that they really regretted it. Well, that's the, the best planned accident I've ever seen from the intelligence that was available. Uh, and how the Israelis attacked and how they even attacked a Soviet rescue ship that was trying to come to the support of the USS Liberty and its sailors that were still in the water. Um, so we've covered up a lot to keep that relationship stable in the, in the perception of the, of the public arena. Uh, but we're going to pay for that now because this war just gets uglier and uglier. And in terms of war crimes, the Israelis are committing war crimes on a daily basis. I, I was also going to say, we have to mention it at some point, but, uh, I know you talked there about. Uh, the American Jewish lobby or the Israel lobby. And I, I know there's going to be at least one listener 
that is going to be screaming at the top of their lungs about anti-Semitism. And I mean, having known your work, I, I I'm Jewish. So people before they jump at me, <laughs> I have to point out I am an American Jew. Uh, of course, I've pointed that out in groups when I've uh, gotten some hostility and someone yelled out once, well, you're a self-hating Jew. So <laughs> you can't win all the time. <laughs> so then uh, I was very interested uh, to have you talk maybe about your visit to Israel. I, I believe you were there for an official visit um, in the late 1970s. Uh, what insights did you gain from that visit? Well, uh, I was with CIA then, and we had regular uh, consultations with Mossad uh, because outside the so-called Five Eyes relationship among the English-speaking states, we share as much intelligence with Israel as we do with anybody. Uh, in fact, more than most. Only, uh, well, Britain, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, uh, you know, the English-speaking countries uh get more intelligence than is provided to israel um but even though they get all these this intelligence uh they would still run a an agent like jonathan pollard to get even more intelligence uh which i think could have compromised the american government's relationship with its jewish community putting jews at risk by engaging in this kind of activity which again they lied about and called it a maverick uh program which it wasn't um, but in dealing with the Israelis specifically, um, the, the intelligence people, they're very good. Uh, they only concentrate on their part of the world, unlike the United States, which has uh, global uh, responsibilities. But in traveling to Israel, and I went there for the first time as a teenager in the 1950s as a you know, typical Jewish Zionist wanting to see uh, Israel, if you get into the 70s and 80s, you can see the old uh, labor movement, the Histadrut, uh, the Ashkenazi, the European Jew, how they were losing influence and losing power. And you had more immigrants, uh, immigrants coming from Russia, very conservative. Uh, you have uh, the rise of the Sephardic community and now the ultra-Orthodox community. So you had this uh, policy tilt, this, this uh, political tilt in the domestic fabric. Uh, of Israel. And Netanyahu has carried this to a real extreme by bringing in people like uh, Ben Gavir and Smotrich into his cabinet, people who should never be in a, in a governing uh, cabinet or governing coalition. Um, so it was, it was a wonderful experience dealing with the Israelis on a personal level. Uh, it was only when you step back and looked at their policy uh, in the 70s, I was on a trip once when I, I filed a formal statement of criticism. Uh, and in the uh, statement, I referred to Israel as an apartheid nation. Uh, and that just uh, just angered them. That just uh, cut them to the quick. Uh, they were so quick to uh, deny that. But look at where we are now uh, and with the settlements policy. So uh, I had good friends over there and, and good colleagues, but the more you watch their policies. And I think the turning point was 1982 and the invasion of uh, Lebanon. And then what happened with uh, the Israeli military allowing the phalangists to go into the uh, refugee camps and slaughter Palestinians in uh, Shatila and uh, uh, I forgot the name of the other camp. Sabra, uh, right? 
Sabra, yeah, Shatila and Sabra. And it's um, it's been downhill ever since, staying in Lebanon nearly 20 years, a uh, couple of intifadas, uh, the handling of the situation in, in Jerusalem. Uh, it's, uh, it's very sad to watch the self-inflicted wounds in the Israeli policy process and the militarization of Israeli policy generally. I was curious, do you think it's gotten... I, I would say the Netanyahu regime and these figures like Smotrich and Ben Giver being let in, to me, this is signaling that the uh, sort of political discourse in Israel itself is going farther and farther to the right. I mean, we're very far removed at this point from the hopes that I think people had in the days of uh, Yitzhak Rabin being prime minister before he was assassinated. Uh, do you think things have gotten worse re with regards to, I would say, the far right in Israel? Oh, much worse. And I think it's good, again, to point out the October War. The October War ended the uh, premiership of Golda Meir and the political career of Moshe Dayan, for that matter, because he wanted to be prime minister and probably could have been without the failure of the October War. But when Golda Meir was removed, she was replaced by Yitzhak Rabin. A lot of people have forgotten that. That was his first uh, term uh, as head of the Israeli government. Well, Netanyahu is a dead man walking uh, politically. I mean, the dust will have to settle and he'll have to be uh, removed. And I don't think we're going to get someone uh, who was essentially a centrist like uh, Rabin. I don't know if they'll go further to the right, um, but there's a good possibility uh, of that because there's such a revenge-mindedness going on in Israel, and also so much pain, because uh, you know Hamas uh, is guilty of a terrible act of uh, terrorism, and conducted it in a way that just reminded Israelis of uh, the Holocaust and the Nazis. And there's always been this chain of hate. I've always felt that the Israelis felt they had. Um, the ability to conduct themselves toward the Palestinians because of the way they suffered at the hands of the Germans. So the Palestinians who had nothing to do with the Holocaust uh, have paid a terrible price for uh, what is this chain of hate. I hope you don't mind. I hope this isn't too far afield, but you mentioned uh, Jonathan Pollard. I know a lot of people that are unfamiliar with that case. Uh, and I was wondering if we could talk briefly about it because it was funny, about a year or so ago, I saw Pollard was being interviewed in the Times of Israel, and I was very put off by the headline. It was, um, Jonathan Pollard claims Jews will always have dual loyalty, whether they know it or not. And then he lamented that U.S. Jews are not, uh, who, who work in the American security apparatus, are not doing enough to help Israel. He was essentially suggesting that American Jews in the security apparatus should spy for Israel even today. And to me, I, I think what he's promoting there ends up playing into a lot of anti-Semitic tropes. Um, oh, yeah. And he's a very uh, bothersome figure. And what he did, I think, was really uh, just very bad. Well, it was it was deceitful. And uh, what a lot of people don't understand, and I do a lot of lecturing uh, in the Washington area, and I used to do it uh, nationally. Uh, people genuinely think that John, Jonathan Pollard got a wrong deal. He, he got... Well, one of the strongest sentences uh, ever given to someone who is uh, compromising the national security interests of the United States. No, he didn't get a rotten deal at all. And what people didn't know, and they were shocked uh, when I told them this, and it often silenced 
the room that before Pollard sold this information to Israel, there were a couple Arab countries that he contacted who he thought would be more willing to buy this information, uh, including Libya and Saudi Arabia. Uh, and then some of this information, once it was given to Israel, somehow, and we don't know how, but it, it uh, raises a lot of questions, and some of this information, this intelligence, got into the hands of the Soviet Union. And then the worst thing at all, of worst thing of all, that Pollard compromised some of the intercept sites we were using against the Palestinians that we lost because of Pollard's information that was given away, and it uh, allowed for the Palestinians to pull off a successful terrorist raid because the Israelis could no longer monitor uh, these sites. So Pollard um, should not be a, a hero to any community. Uh, he applied originally to work at the CIA. It was denied a security clearance because of his uh, very shaky personality. He went on to apply to the civilian naval agency and people ask, well, why didn't the CIA inform the intelligence community generally? Well, they're privacy rules. You, you can't do that. Uh, so the CIA turned him down, the Navy hired him, and then he went on his uh, campaign to develop as much intelligence collection as he could. He was prolific and particularly trying to give intelligence that we hadn't provided the Israelis because they, they didn't need it. It shouldn't, it was never part of the intelligence exchange. So he was giving them uh, additional materials that were very important to Israel. And I think that's important because, I mean, this this really hurt U.S. national security interests. I mean, that kind of espionage could even hurt individual agents. Oh, yeah. No, no. Lives were lost because of what Pollard did. There's no doubt about that. And people are very upset because uh, they thought he had some kind of special deal with the government at the last minute. Uh, Secretary of, of Defense Caspar Weinberger introduced a letter that was given to the judge. Uh, so the uh, original settlement uh, uh, discussion was thrown out the window, and Pollard did get a stronger sentence than he expected. But, and I've never seen that that Weinberger letter. It's kind of interesting. It's remained classified all of these uh, 30, 40 years. I'd love to see what was in it. Um, but it, uh, it, it was an issue for a lot of people. So uh, you mentioned uh, earlier the calling Gaza an outdoor prison. I keep seeing more and more, I would say, uh, pro-Israel voices saying, you know, all the problems in Gaza are due to Hamas. Uh, Hamas terrorizes its own population, uh, and it's not an official occupation in Gaza that Israel is doing. Uh, we're just protecting the borders around Gaza how do you respond to the sort of pro-Israel talking points about Gaza and its relationship to Israel? Well, I don't think any of them are uh, acceptable or worthy of uh, serious uh, discussion. They know what they've done uh, in Gaza. They know about the sanctions. They know about the restrictions on uh, Gazans using uh, their coastline for a fishing uh, industry, the restrictions on travel, how difficult it is to to move around uh, Gaza or get out of Gaza, the difficulty in getting work permit work permits to come into uh, Israel, uh, students who receive scholarship offers from the United States or Europe or don't get permission to leave the country because Israel is trying to keep uh, Gaza as weak uh, as possible. This has been their policy, and actually. 
when we're seeing this genocidal uh, policy being carried out, it, it you have to look at what Israelis have said about Palestinians over the years, whether it's Golda Meir's reference to the Palestinians as roaches uh, or the current defense minister who refers to uh, the people of Gaza as animals. Uh, and even their justifications that, that I've seen on uh, nightly news for hitting the refugee camp uh, makes it clear that not only is this collective punishment, but it's the worst kind of terrorism uh, in terms of killing and injuring innocent civilians as a way of putting pressure on a government that can't be pressured. Uh, you know, that there's a sadness that uh, I think about when we talk about the dropping of the atomic bomb. You know, it was designed to fall on a civilian center so the Japanese could see the greatest amount of destruction possible to convince the government. Well, that's that's my definition of terrorism, terrorizing civilian community to change the, the politics or policies of the, the ruling regime. And that's what uh, Israel was pursuing uh, in Gaza. And when you add to that closing off evacuation routes and closing off the ability to get uh, food and water and fuel, uh, this these are war crimes, and I think it conforms to a genocidal pattern of activity. You know, if it were up to the Israelis, there'd be no Palestinians on the West Bank. They would all be driven into uh, Jordan. And the Israeli position is, and I've heard this from Israelis the, the, on the trips I was on, well, there is a Palestinian state already. It's called Jordan. Uh, so this is what the uh, Israelis would like to manufacture. I think it's interesting because I think a lot of people, um, for various reasons, don't even think in those terms of, you know, I think everyone agrees that Hamas is engaged in terrorism. Uh, but, you know, there is such a thing as state terror. And you're you're essentially saying that Israel has engaged in that over the years. Oh, no, no question. Uh, they did it in, in Lebanon with the bombing campaign of Beirut. You know, the. Privately, and I got this from uh, Mossad agents in private conversations, the Israelis had always told the Arab states, we will never attack an Arab capital. And there was a self-interested reason because of the vulnerability of Jerusalem to any Arab attack. Uh, so when Sharon, who didn't inform his prime minister, Begin, uh, took the Israeli military all the way to Beirut, they were breaking a commitment they had made to uh, Arab governments, including the government of uh, Lebanon. And as I said earlier, this led to the creation of Hezbollah. And Hezbollah now is in a position to create real havoc on the northern border because they have rockets in greater numbers than Hamas and much greater uh, technological sophistication from Iran in, ter in terms of, uh, you know, guided accuracy. There's just a few more things I wanted to cover here briefly, if you have a, a few extra minutes. Uh, sure. So there's been reports I've been seeing all over the place particularly at places like the Huffington Post, saying that there's a lot of turmoil in the State Department over the Biden policy on Israel-Palestine and what's happening in Gaza. Uh, and of course, we just had uh, a senior State Department official, uh, Josh Paul, uh, resign in protest over the rush of military delivery deliveries to an Israeli military uh, that, as you say, doesn't need them. Uh, could you speak to uh, your thoughts on the reports of turmoil in the State Department? 
I'd be uh, really hesitant to uh, accept that at face value. Uh, mainly, I worked at the State Department in the uh, early 1970s. It's a it's a very weak political bureaucracy. Uh, if they really wanted to do something, if there was genuine turmoil, there is a dissent channel. And this was brought into play in 1971, 1972, when Kissinger had his tilt toward Pakistan, uh, which was responsible for the war between India and Pakistan. And you had over 70 foreign service officers sign this dissent uh, cable. Um now, Josh Paul, and I really respect him. It's not easy to do what he did. I mean, as a whistleblower myself in 1991, I know what it means when you try to throw yourself in in front of a moving train like a presidential administration and, and its policies. Uh, and he says he's gotten a lot of support in uh, comments that have been made to him in private, uh, but he's not getting any support in terms of other people uh, speaking out. Um I've always found these bureaucracies generally rather cowardly. Uh, and there's so much uh, self-promotion within the Foreign Service and how you get ahead. Uh, there, it sounds like there's a lot of careerism maybe that goes on. That's, that's the word I was awkwardly moving toward. You know, it's classic in the uh, case of the State Department, unfortunately. So... The other issue that I think is at play, you know, I've had people like uh, Professor Stephen Walt on, and I thought his book on the Israel lobby was very interesting because, you know, contrary to what people may think, that book is sort of saying that the U.S.-Israel relationship, in addition to being very lopsided, is actually in the long run hurting Israel. Uh, and I also think these figures like Ben Giver and Smotrich are actually putting Israel on a collision course uh, towards a very, very dangerous future uh, that, that harms Israel in the long run. Uh, what do you think of that analysis? Uh, do you agree or disagree with me on that? Well, I generally uh, agree with that. I, I think what Biden is trying to do is uh, save the Israelis from themselves. Uh, he he is being a little too tentative, I think, uh, and and careful but you would expect that in terms of our own domestic politics. But when I look at the writings of Thomas Friedman has had some excellent uh, op-eds in the New York Times recently, the David Remnick piece in the New Yorker uh, is very good. But how do you save the Israelis from themselves when that, that right wing, that Herodim movement is uh, so important uh, these days, and now they have this the massacre that's so reminiscent of the Holocaust that is going to create a collective post-traumatic stress disorder in Israel and the Palestinians, well, they're already paying for it, but they're going to continue to pay for it. Uh, I don't think we fully know about the settler violence that's taken place in, on the West Bank and uh, resulted in so many uh, killings already of innocent Palestinians. And I go back to something, one of my favorite Israeli writers, David Grossman, in the book Yellow Wind, uh, when he talked about it, it's just become too easy for Israeli soldiers to kill Palestinian civilians and to, for settlers to uproot olive trees. It's 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 an unfortunate uh, kind of occupation because they took the land uh, in the Six-Day War and they never had a policy for what in the hell to do about it. Uh, so now they're sitting on this tinderbox on the West Bank that could seriously erupt, uh, as well as this brutal situation in Gaza, uh, which gets uglier and uglier every day.
I've had a recent guest say to me that, you know, Israel is eventually going to have to come to the realization uh, that, you know, eradicating Hamas is probably going to be harder than they may have thought. And ultimately, with regards to the broader Israel-Palestine issue, there's going to at some point need to be a political solution. I think it's either going to be a political solution or, you know, the far right in Israel is just going to keep pushing farther and farther until we get something like, you know, the the complete annexation of the West Bank and we get things like ethnic cleansing. Uh, where do you see things headed, though? Well, I guess my fear is heading in just that direction, that it'll get worse before it uh, gets worse. Uh, so what Israel has done over the years, over the years has radicalized the Palestinians even more. They've created more terrorists. You know, it's that question that uh, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld asked of his own military uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Are we creating more terrorists than we're annihilating? Blowback. And that's what blowback. That's what Israel has been doing on a uh, regular basis, thinking that ultimate force. Uh, and because they were so successful in Lebanon in 2006, and the leader of Hezbollah even said, if I knew the Israelis were going to respond in this fashion, uh, I wouldn't have started this confrontation in the first place. Well, it's convinced Isra Israelis that eventually they will reach a level of force and destruction and annihilation where Hamas and the others will come out of their tunnels and say, okay, we understand you win. And it's just not going to happen. And when I think of Afghanistan, where we shouldn't have been for 20 years, and there's the Taliban back in Kabul. Uh, so how you uproot uh, these uh, groups uh, is something that I think military force doesn't resolve. Before closing out, uh, you know, I think people especially younger people are only just beginning to learn about the Palestinian side of um, the this issue. And, you know, I think more and more people are becoming aware of Palestinian grievances such as the Nakba or the catastrophe, uh, which, of course, has been denied by uh, uh, many rather odious pro-Israel figures. Um, what do you think are the grievances that if people are just learning about this subject, what are the grievances on the Palestinian side that uh, people need to most be aware of? Well, I think when you go back to the Nakba, and, uh, which yeah, means catastrophe, and the forced expulsion of Palestinians, and then not allowing Palestinians to return uh, to their properties, this is uh, central, uh, along with the, the rights of uh Jerusalem as important to uh, both Arab communities and Israeli communities as a, a center of uh, governance. So these issues remain uh, central, uh, but the Israelis are not even willing to negotiate now uh, with Palestinians. Uh, they've really put themselves into a very uh, difficult situation. And to me, you could, you'll never resolve the Gaza situation except in the context of an overall Israeli-Palestinian settlement of some kind. And I don't think we've been that uh, forceful in urging them to move in that direction. I think American leaders think they've been saying all the right things, uh, but it's been a very uh, controlled dialogue uh, on our part. And the sad thing, and it's particularly sad from a Jewish perspective, because if anyone should understand the problem of the Palestinians, it should be the Jews. And what has happened to the Jews over the years and the, the denial 
of of rights and humanity uh and how now here they're doing it to a palestinian community that's being ignored not only uh by various centers of the international community including europe and the united states but by arab states who have never taken this issue seriously and and like the fact that these refugee camps are there as a reminder of what israel has done so they they've never uh attempted to really provide their own answers. That's why these solutions I'm starting to see now from people who should know better, uh, that we're going to get a ceasefire in Gaza and somehow introduce an international coalition, whether it's a UN peacekeeping force or uh, something that Gutter or the Saudis put together uh, to manage affairs, uh, sort of in trustee type fashion until the political situation gets settled. And no one's going to step into uh, that role. Uh, and and particularly the the UN the UN is good at uh, peacekeeping. Once there's been some settlement, the UN has never established itself in terms of peacemaking. Uh, so again, it comes back to what I said earlier that the only entity that can put any pressure on Israel is the United States, uh, and we're unwilling to do it. Real quick, since you mentioned the Arab states, and I, I especially think of the Gulf states in this regard. I've often said to people, and I know this is a very crude way of putting it, I feel like a lot of Arab states will talk about how much they care about the Palestinians while essentially throwing them under the bus. Um, and that's the crude way of putting it. Could you speak to more towards why that is? Well, I think it's for what I alluded to previously, that uh, this terrible situation that the Palestinians find themselves in, uh, in the West Bank, particularly in Gaza, but also the refugee camps uh, in Lebanon and, and Jordan that have been refugee camps since 1948, uh, allow these uh, Arab states to point to Israeli policy and what the Israelis have done to the Palestinian community. So they have no real concern, uh, emotional or humanitarian concern for the Palestinians, but they love having um, an instrument uh, for beating on the Israelis. Uh, you know, the Arabs, with, even without this issue, have always had a good case to make against Israel, but they seem to have poor lawyers or poor spokesmen. And I thought the Israeli case was a much tougher one to prove, but they've had good lawyers and advocates, and particularly the news media in the United States, which is so obviously pro-Israel, to watch Jake Tapper night after night come to tears talking to uh, Israelis who've suffered from October the 7th but showing no emotion whatsoever in any discussion with any Palestinian figure. It, it just, it just, uh, it just rankles. I just wanted to add to that uh, briefly here. Um, you know, I, I recall John Stewart, the, the famous comedian of the daily show being asked about uh, Israel, Palestine a few years ago. And he said that he sort of sees the problem as being, you know, the, the one people that would benefit the one party that would benefit from a political solution to all of this are the Palestinians. Whereas um, a lot of the political players in this don't necessarily benefit. The, the people really caught in the middle of all of this at the end of the day are the Palestinians. It's not, you know, the Arab states, uh, Israel, the US, uh, they're not the ones receiving the brunt of the, the pain. Well, the tragedy, the way I see it in terms of uh, Israelis who want Palestinians to be more forthcoming, the Palestinians don't have anything to offer. They have no leverage. They have no influence. They have no power. 
they're up against uh, a regional superpower uh, in the form of Israel that's become increasingly militarized uh, over the years. It's a very militarized state, much like what the United States has uh, become. And this appears to be getting uh, worse. So the Palestinians uh, suffer as a result. But in any confrontation of this kind, it's always been the powerless who have suffered uh, the most. And I go back to the you know the writings of Sigmund Freud on the what he called the narcissism of petty differences, that people who are most alike uh, have the greatest difficulty getting along. And I think of Turks and Greeks from my couple years in the military in Greece, or is uh, Jews and Palestinians. You know, I've traveled enough in Israel to know how similar they are and what wonderful people they are and how they could easily get along uh, if the leadership situation were different in, in both places. Very last question. I promise to let you go since you've gone over time with me. I'm very appreciative of that. Uh, but in closing, what do you think, in the best case scenario, how can things change? What do you see as being the solution to this? I know a lot of people argue about whether there should be a two-state or a one-state solution to Israel-Palestine. I think there just needs to be some type of political solution. That's my view. Uh, but what is your general take on what's the best case scenario for solving the, this longstanding issue? Well, it's diff very difficult to foresee uh, right now. I've often felt that you, there's not going to be a one-state uh, solution because then uh, Israel ultimately will not become that uh, democracy. The, the Jews will find ways to protect themselves uh, from an increased Palestinian minority. They're already 20% of the population uh, of Israel. So there has to be a, a two-state uh, solution. Uh, but with the events of October the 7th, uh, that's going to be very difficult. But the best case would be uh, a two-state solution in which Hamas is dismantled and the Palestinian Authority extends its influence not only in the West Bank, but also into Gaza. But the Palestinian Authority has been so uh, corrupt over the years, and Abbas is uh, increasingly ill, and uh, age is a, a huge factor. I hear um, that over and over again about the, the corruption of the Palestinian Authority, but I haven't had anyone elaborate on that. Yeah, well, I'm not really in a position to elaborate on it himself, but okay. to, to read it, you know, consistently from all sides, uh, I, I take it at, at face value that the people of the West Bank feel that their leadership is is corrupt, and they're just as angry at their leaders as they are at Israeli leaders. Uh, so they've been sacrificed in in both directions. It sounds like there's no easy answers at this time. Uh, and I appreciate your honesty in, in you know, uh, tackling that. Uh, how can my listeners keep up with your work? You write regularly for Counterpunch. Uh, are there I'm any right. uh, new books you have coming out or anything you want to plug? No, my 10th book was uh, on, um, you know, dealing with the, the militarization of the United States. And I decided that's going to be my last book. Uh but I do write weekly for counterpunch.org and you can go to counterpunch.org uh, for these essays or my website, melvingoodman.com. Um, they're posted there uh, as well. Um, and thank you for uh, providing a lot of time to a very difficult uh, issue. 
that needs more uh, objective analysis or more of a willingness to step back um, and go beyond October the 7th uh, to see what the context is uh, and avoid just using pretext to try to explain uh, these situations. By the way, I'm sorry I did not mention uh, your latest book, uh, Containing the National Security State, the one you just referenced. Uh, I hope my listeners will check that out. And thank you again, Melvin Goodman, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Melvin A. Goodman. And you'll check out his regular column at Counterpunch. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.